Okay, okay, listen to me. The human world is a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got going on up there. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things surround you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better, don't wear it's wetter. Take it from me. On the shore they work all day Out in the sun they slave away While we devoting full time to floating under the sea Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 11th, 2023 Happy Tony's Day My name is James Marino And on the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Peter, how did the uh, Theatre World Awards go last Monday? Uh, I think okay. Um, The thing is, when people speak, I uh, move backstage and I start going over the lines I'm going to uh, Uh. say, so I don't I don't hear. I overhear rather than hear the awards. But uh, this, the speeches seem to be heartfelt and, and very nice. Uh, so um, I think it went okay. I, people afterwards have told me they they had a, a wonderful time, uh, especially because it was started by Benjamin Pajak, the young man who was in uh, Music Man with Hugh Jackman playing Winthrop, and uh, he sang Gary Indiana for us as well as Where Is Love because he just did all of our uh, at City Center. So um, so he was a big hit and uh, a tough act to follow because as soon as he finished singing, I came on. So, uh, but uh, it seemed a good time was had by all. Michael was there. Get his opinion. All right. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. I, uh, so, yeah, I did attend the Theater World Awards, and then the next day... Um, I was at the Drama Desk Awards, uh, which were this year held at Sardi's, a much smaller, much more intimate affair um, than <laughs> in the past. And um, they had a lot of problems this year with uh, the they had lost their previous producer from last year. And then the person who was supposed to produce it this year apparently got very, very ill. Uh, I'm happy to report he's he's apparently fine now, but uh, he had to bow out and they got someone else to do it at the last moment. Um, so bearing all of that in mind, uh, it, it it went well. Uh, the, the hosts were Mandy Patinkin and his wife, Catherine Grody. And um, there were a couple of issues there because it's Mandy Patinkin. Uh, but <laughs> um but he is a name, uh, you know, especially he and, and his wife to somewhat a lesser extent. So I'm sure they were very glad to have them. And it was um, fun to be in a small room with really some really great people like Anna Lee Ashford and Stephen McKinley Henderson and uh, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda presented to Tommy Kale, who won uh, for Sweeney Todd. So um, I think I, I wonder if the drama desk is going to continue to have small scale 
uh, awards events like this rather than try to go back to a place like um, they used to do them at uh, the the LaGuardia High School Auditorium. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think one year maybe they were maybe were they one year at Town Hall? Anyway, uh, at they least used- two. At least oh, two. okay, yeah. So they used to be in larger venues. So, but maybe this is maybe this is best for what they um, have. Oh, and by the way, um, uh, we're going to talk about Days of Wine and Roses in a moment, uh, which Peter and I saw at the same performance, and uh, that was a kind of a star-studded audience. Lin Manuel was there again, and um, several other people, and 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 Stephen McKinley Henderson, and I got to uh, see him. Uh, at uh, I think it was after the show or right before, and I and I said, uh, "Congratulations on your drama desk award." And he says, "Well, you know," he says, "That's one that really means something." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was nice of him to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, rumor has it that uh, this evening he might be getting another award. Mm-hmm. So, I think that would uh, be lovely. Yeah. So we are recording in the morning of uh, Sunday. The uh, June 11th, uh, Tony Awards are tonight. Last week, we gave our predictions. Uh, we're not going to really <laughs> talk about much of it now, but we'll uh, we'll do a little recap next week on the show. Uh, but if you want to hear our predictions, go back in the feed and you can hear our, our last week's show. We had all of our predictions of the major awards. So uh, there was a little bit of news to follow up on something we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Uh, Here Lies Love and the Musicians Union, AFM, have come to a, a, an agreement. And the uh, producers said, on behalf of the entire cast, company, and creative team, we have reached an agreement with Musicians Union Local 802 per the collective bargaining agreement. We look forward to welcoming audiences to experiencing the revolutionary musical that is Here Lies Love at the Broadway Theater beginning on Saturday, June 17th. So there was a lot of words there, but none of them really mean anything. (laughs) So, Michael, what do you think they meant by this? Well, I'm not going to parse what they meant by it, but I I just wanted to point out that um, I think this is a very complicated situation, and it's not just black. Some people want to make it black and white, and I really don't think it is. Um, I... uh, and I do recall that during one of the previous uh, conflicts between uh, the musicians' union and the and the producers on this same subject, um, basically the, the you know the the producers feel that they should be able to set and continue to have um, minimums for uh, the theaters and uh, the musicians. Um, well, I mean, they've agreed to that, but they but they don't they don't really like it, and the, uh, and they certainly don't like the fact that the minimums keep being lowered, <laughs> lowered. Um, but I do remember that the last time it happened, and it it, uh, um, it got to picketing, and I think it, there was a, there was an actual strike at that point for a few days. Um, Stephen Sondheim weighed in, and what he said was that both part both parties were wrong. Um, and what he meant by that when he explained it was that uh, he felt it should be the the creators of the show who decide how many musicians are necessary for their production. Now, when you say that, um, it sounds absolute. Of course, he's right. Who else should it be? You know, it, it, uh, it should be the people who write the music, uh, right? 
I mean, mm-hmm. does anyone disagree with that? But the only problem with that is that's complicated too, because people know, composers know that if they stick to their guns and say, well, I really feel we need 22 musicians for this. In some cases, their show will not be produced. And in fact, even Sondheim himself allowed um, two productions on Broadway that really were just absolutely pitiful in the number of musicians in the orchestra. And that was the revival of a little night music with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury et al. And also the production, not the the most recent revival, but the previous one of Sunday in the Park with George, uh, the one that had uh, all that, that animation in it. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll never forget this. I wish I could find it i i looked in google i cannot find it but i distinctly remember that it was either todd hames or david babani uh, who produces these shows at the minier chocolate factory and then brings them to broadway with with in with insufficient musicians um one of them said in an interview somewhere that uh that they would have had more, more musicians if sondheim had asked for them and Sondheim, um, you know, he could have gone ballistic, but he just kind of maintained his cool and wrote a letter to the Times saying, if I had known I could have had more musicians, I would have asked for them. Mm-hmm. So that was a little weird little game they, they were playing there. Uh, but this points up just what I was saying about how it's a very complicated situation. And, and even if you were to say, well, uh, leave it up to the composer. Uh, to decide, it, it's still not that simple because of those pressures on the composer to keep the uh, musicians down, the number of musicians down, in order to make sure that you're going to actually get a production. I, I, don't, I don't track uh, Menier Chocolate Factory all that close, but I would think it'd be David Babani and not really Todd Hames. That I, I'm not sure about that, but I, I would you would say, imagine. I'm sorry, say that again. I would imagine that was David Babani that produced at the Menier, not. Oh yes, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I meant. He, he, David Babani. Oh, okay. He's, he right. was the artistic yeah, yeah. director or whatever, yeah. and is of the and and that I've never been, but apparently it's a tiny space. Yeah, I've been there a few times. So they do these shows there. The cabaret started there. The cabaret revival. Mm, yeah. Uh, they do these shows there with tiny bands uh you know orchestras uh which is appropriate for the tiny space but then they move them here and they don't expand them sufficiently so uh in the times the times says that the uh band is going to use uh the band is going to be 12 musicians for here lies love uh but including uh, three on stage musicians apparently actor uh, musicians yeah I don't. I don't really know the details of that. I don't recall that. That's a. But, that's what everyone's saying online. Yeah. So, well, guess we'll get to see if uh, twelve musicians are going to be able to fill the Broadway theater. Hmm. So it was uh, supposed to be uh, uh, the minimum, I believe, at that theater is nineteen, and that's a problem because uh, I think that's one reason why that theater is not used as much as it uh, as it. Uh, used to be. Uh, because well, John Doyle directed uh, King Kong. King Kong could have played the violin during. <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> that's that, that was, that's I think that's what was wrong with that show, uh, James. John mm. Doyle didn't direct it. Yes, <laughs> this is usually the problem with most shows. <laughs> so, uh, well, so here lies love. I'm glad that they sorted this out this week. I had heard it was really coming to a conclusion. I'm glad that it was done before the Tony Awards, and then... Uh, and so we're, still... now we're all set until the next time, and when we'll see how long it is till the, the next conflict arises. Yeah. So, uh, here we are, <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, some of our reviews for this morning. Peter had a very Shakespearean <laughs> week, uh, headed out to Pennsylvania Shakespeare, Pennsylvania Shakes, um, about an hour and a half outside of New York City to see a very uh, less often done Henry the Fourth Part Two. You know the sequels; they never do as well as the part one. That's ones. right. That's right. You yeah, know. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, tell us how did this part two shake out? It is uh, indeed um, the only real play that could be considered a sequel to uh, to others, but uh, because the the Henry the Sixth plays weren't um, written in the order that you might think. They were one, two, and three. It didn't happen that way. Anyway, uh, what made this production of more than moderate interest is the fact that there's no director. The Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival does this from time to time. It feels that back in Shakespeare's day, uh, there were no directors yet. That concept hadn't been established. So as a result, why don't we just try it? Let's just have the actors on their own. They will direct <laughs> themselves, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. And, uh, you know, in an age where a lot of writers from the Writers Guild of America are worried about artificial intelligence taking over for um, writers, uh, maybe uh, directors aren't as needed uh, on the basis of this production, because really, um, it was a terrific production of, as we say, an obscure play. I did the math, um, and I found that um, in the past 353 years, there have been three Broadway productions of Henry IV Part II. Uh, it just doesn't get done that often, probably because you have to know Part One. So uh, so we did get to our um, various books and various uh, internet locations to find out more about this play. Uh, but this is the one that really is very effective because um, Falstaff and Prince Hal are palling around and they're the best of buddies. But what happens when uh, indeed Henry um, the fourth dies and Henry the fifth is going to take over? How is he going to uh, treat his old drinking buddy who gets him in um, um, trouble? And also it's, it's not good for the image of a king and all that. So a terrific actor named John Aline, A-H-L-I-N, is playing Falstaff. Yeah. It, his gestures with his hands are so subtle and wonderful. There were three times I really laughed out loud at the gestures his hands were making. But aside from that, he really does extraordinarily well in um, getting the essence of Falstaff. Whenever he's insulted, especially about the fact that he drinks to excess, he looks astonished that somebody would make this charge against him. It's as if he's never heard it before. He has heard it before, but he acts as if he doesn't, and uh, that's great fun. Um, so um, he, he has, uh, at one point, an ode to uh, the liquor known as sherry. Um, he has the order for the Frankie Valley has for the sherry in his song. Yeah, very, very funny. He uh, he gets a lot of laughs when he suggests that he's young. Um, I did some research there, and Aline was uh, in the 
Broadway production, a very good Eddie, not originally, no, I'm not saying that, but the revival in the 70s. So uh, so he's no kid. And so it was fun, too, to have him um, be astonished when people suggest that he's old. And yet later, when he drops his sword, watch him try to pick it up. Yeah, that's when we, he has to realize right then and there that uh, no matter how much bravado he gives, um, he is old, and that's all there is to it. So, um, but he's really great at the end too when uh, um, he is he he figures he's golden because now that his pal has become king, uh, he's all set for the rest of his life. He's golden. Uh, it turns out to be fool's gold, but that's another story. Eli Lynn, a trans non-binary performer, plays Prince Hal. Um, not to be confused with the Hal Prince, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> um, An audience may need a little bit of uh, time to adjust to this, but um, you know, I, I always find that when I'm at a show where I can't hear somebody very well at the beginning, my ears adjust. When I go to a show where there's a thick foreign accent, uh, and I think I'm not going to understand it. My ears adjust. Similarly speaking, I really do believe that people who have problems with the fact that this is um, not done and uh, the casting is not done the most uh, masculine way. It's not going to take long before you really adjust and um, really come to appreciate how terrific Eli Lynn is as an actor. And um, by the time that um, Prince Hal becomes Henry V, yeah, you're really convinced uh, that this is a person who could really make it happen. Um, Eli also is the fight director of the show, so uh, Eli's been busy. They don't have a director, but they have a fight director. So um, uh, there's also a wonderful scene, a wonderful scene where um, Prince Hal jumps the gun. He thinks that um, Henry the Fourth has died, and there's the crown just sitting there. And well, why don't I just try it on for size? Well, imagine what happens when the king is not dead and wakes up and doesn't see his crown there. Yeah, and he knows what happens. So Jim Ireland is terrific at this point, too. So a very, very, very successful production uh, all the way down the line. And, of course, what's always fun in any uh, Shakespearean play is when you hear an expression, you say, ah, oh, is that where that comes from? <laughs> so Mistress Quickly, um, who's um, some, some sort of a friend, um, though she does complain that Falstaff does eat her out of house and home. So that's where that one comes from. And um, the king has that line, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, which we've heard from time to time. Um, I'm wondering if any directors show up uh, who are used to having their own crowns on their heads, so to speak, um, that they have the power to say, uh, no, 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 no. Or, hey, that's a good idea. Leave that in. Whatever it is. I wonder if these directors um, really um, get worried because that, line shows up in the eighth scene of 19 scenes of the next 11 scenes are they saying hmm you know should i feel uneasy about being a director given the fact that these people did such a good job with no direction at all so a very worthwhile experience okay that is henry the fourth part two of pennsylvania shakespeare festival uh but unfortunately it is closing mm. today today's the last yeah. day june 11th uh so we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can get back to their website and see what other things they're offering yeah bob cuccioli is going to be playing crossbow in the tent tempest um in a few weeks so uh, i'm going are you back heading back that. out to see it i am okay. yeah yeah good, good to hear 
All right. Uh, back here in New York, both Peter and Michael got to see the Atlantic Theater Company's production of Days of Wine and Roses with uh, the two most beautiful people on earth. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, um, this is an adaptation of a very famous property made most famous by a movie in the 60s. Um, and in fact, there's a very famous song attached with the one in Oscar by Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer um, about uh, a public relations guy who meets this woman who doesn't drink. That'll change. He changes her. And uh, that's going to be a problem all the way down the line, be it with his uh, the girl's father and, um, and themselves. He's the one who comes to realization that they're hopeless drunks. She doesn't. And uh, he has to really work very hard to convince her that she should um, go to AA as he's doing. And um, it's a sad story. I don't think it's the most logical story to be musicalized, but um, they did it. Um, what can I say about Adam Gettle's music? It it just never speaks to me. And I remember at the Star Ledger one time, I um, I wasn't enthusiastic. I wasn't mean, but I wasn't enthusiastic about the music of Light in the Piazza. It doesn't speak to me. And I remember getting a letter from a, a PhD in music saying, I assure you, every note of that score is magnificent. So um, it, it just doesn't, it, I like, songs that sound like songs and this is more all over the place type music wall-to-wall music um by and large and um it uh notes go up notes go down uh, and um that's that so it it's, it's not a cast album i i would listen to well um that said brian darcy james and kelly o'hara are magnificent uh it's a very difficult um property and they maneuvered very well the only complaint i have about kelly o'hara is i wish that they made her look worse for wear as time went on uh at the end of the show she looks terrific granted she says it's been five days since i've had a drink she was making an attempt at least which she decides not to continue but but i wish that she really um did look like the wrath of god as time continued because uh, certainly alcoholism does take its toll uh but all all the stuff that comes from the movie that craig lucas does um is is quite fine and i like the fact that he has made the father angrier and more confrontational uh, it, it is true in the movie that um the father says you are the one who got her started on this mm. which is 100 percent accurate um i've always felt there was a problem both in the movie and in this musical that um uh, mr clay that being his name doesn't admit to that forthrightly he doesn't say you're right guilty is charged um and i wish he had i i wonder if the the musical would have been more successful if indeed it uh, did allow for optimism at the end um they don't have to stick to what happened in in the 60s screenplay maybe it would be a good idea to have her say you're right joe i want to go to aa and uh, i i would have preferred to see that happen but especially in the fact they have a kid at that point in time. Um, the kid uh, has much more of a presence in the uh, musical than in the movie. And, um, and and that's allows for a lot of poignant moments. So I, I think that was a good idea. So, um, so it wasn't for me. All right, Michael, how about you? Uh, well, first of all, to clarify a specific point, there, there is a point in the musical where uh 
where he does where joe clay does say i i i got you started um i think but he said it to her to father. oh okay yeah, you're her, saying yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the competition with the father when he says you're the one who got her drinking right right uh, he he really should admit to that you know um he 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 lets that slide so anyway yeah pardon. interesting that he says it to uh kirsten but not to the sure, father sure uh i guess maybe he just can't yeah bring yeah, himself to say it yeah um this uh, property started out uh, as a teleplay mm-hmm. uh, before the uh, the movie, and I remember seeing a um, uh, state off Broadway stage production of the the script of the teleplay not too many years ago. That was really excellent. I, I haven't been able to find uh, uh, many details on that. Uh, immediately so i i can't tell you more about that but I, I i will say i thought it worked beautifully um to do that teleplay on stage in a really n- nice production that that was done off broadway um i think uh i uh, i think adam gettle can write um more accessibly when he wants to uh i i think there are several songs in light in the piazza that that are completely accessible and very very beautiful um uh, there are others that are not <laughs> that are much more complex uh, i also would point to his unbelievably beautiful song how glory goes from floyd collins which i i believe uh we hear is going to be revived by lincoln center um in the next few years sometime so you'll be able to enjoy i think i always have said that's one of the most beautiful and profound musical theater songs ever written um the thing uh, that a lot of people say about adam is that he can't write melody and that i really have to disagree with i think that this this score uh, and others are full of melody the thing is that um they're not traditional song forms very, very rarely, if ever, will he write an A-A-B-A song. Uh, and because uh, things don't repeat, uh, the melodies don't get a chance to lodge in our heads. Uh, and that that's one reason why I think a lot of people say he can't write melody. Uh, but as Sondheim, again, to quote Sondheim, among others, has pointed out, repetition is really key <laughs> um, to having an audience uh, come out humming the tunes. And so I think that that is the main issue here. Um, there is also the fact that that sometimes he writes in a very um, uh, modern style uh i won't say atonal but uh there might be touches of that uh and uh just more sometimes more minimalist um uh modern day song styles rather than golden age but um i i really was glad to uh that this show was produced because it's been quite a while <laughs> since the quite a while since the last um new adam gettle musical and we'll see uh what what he has uh to bring us in the future um i think another issue i have with with um his scores is actually the lyrics sometimes i think the lyrics are very enigmatic uh sometimes they're very poetic and um obscure and full of metaphors and symbols uh rather than actually uh aping the way that people my talk in real life um i i wish he would do a little bit less of that i think that would also um help 
make his scores more popular among the general public but you know he's <laughs> who am i to tell him how to write uh he writes how he writes um what else uh, i think the um the show suffered a little bit by the fact that it seemed very episodic in structure and believe it or not i've i've never seen the movie um or the or the tv version only that off broadway version that i saw uh so i think that might be inherent in the material somewhat but i think it worked against um the narrative to a certain degree also i think that there's a flaw in in here that i that might be inherent in the original property i i assume it is and peter touched on this um there is a point during the show when something really really bad happens as a direct result of the fact that kirsten is uh is drunk and i should add in uh, on that note that she's also a smoker uh so you can probably figure out um what i'm talking about there um and then right after that thing happens that she does have a period of sobriety and during that period of sobriety she recognizes that she's an alcoholic and that it's a bad thing but then she has a relapse and then after she has the relapse then she starts saying things like um people who who don't drink are weak uh you know it's as if she never had that realization and i don't think that i don't think that happens in real life i think there are people who always lie to themselves and can't face the truth uh and never will own up to being alcoholics but i think if they do I don't think they go back on it. Uh, I, I've never known of anyone doing that. So I, I, that did not ring true to me. Um, but with all of these negatives that I'm saying, uh, I, I still thought it was very, very well done. And I was glad to see it. And I, I, even if I think that maybe another director other than Michael Greif might have solved some of the problems. And really to see and hear these two uh, Kelly O'Hara and Brian Darcy James uh, on stage again. I, I, I've always thought they're among our most magnificent singing actors, and their acting is every bit as good as their incredible singing. Uh, Kelly, we've been lucky enough to to hear and see in so many shows, uh, so many musicals, revivals, and new shows. Uh, Brian, um, less so, and I would say it's been a, a long time since his beautiful voice got full uh full exposure in a musical so uh if only for that uh i would say that this this is a very very welcome uh show uh we'll see if it has a future life i highly doubt it even with those two i don't think it's a broadway show uh, although it might um you might possibly see it in a in a limited run in one of the institutional theaters the atlantic theater where it's playing now does not have a broadway house uh unlike the uh um unlike the, the well uh the roundabout obviously and and um mtc etc uh so they would have to partner i guess with one of those places to bring it to broadway and we'll see if that happens all right so that is uh Days of Wine and Roses, the Atlantic Theater Company. It's playing through July 16th, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, let's see, Michael, you got a chance to see Primary Trust. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your experience with that. Yeah, I was a little late to this one, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I had to mention it because I absolutely loved it. It's one of the most beautiful new plays I've seen 
in quite some time by Ebony Booth, E-B-O-N-I Booth, directed by Knud Adams uh, in the uh, Laura Pels Theater. Uh, and uh, it's a really, really moving story about this fellow named Kenneth who's living uh, in a suburb of Rochester, uh, New York. Uh, apparently, it's a fictional place called Cranberry, but I'm sure it's like many actual places around there. And he um, uh, he tells us that he's about to turn 40, and he uh, he always hangs out in a very specific bar every night after work at, at a bookstore and drinks Mai Tais with a friend named Bert. Um, Kenneth is played by William Jackson Harper, and Bert is played by Eric Berryman. Uh, but we soon learn uh, that Bert is an imaginary friend, and you might—you're uh, immediately wondering, well, isn't that rather odd for an adult? to have an imaginary friend. And then it gradually comes out that this is due to um, a past trauma in the life of Kenneth. And uh, we learn quite early on that his mother died when he was 10. So we think, well, maybe, well, maybe that's the trauma, you know, uh, but then it turns out to be far, far worse than that, uh, which is not revealed until towards the end of the play um so he uh he's a very compelling character um uh, especially as played by william jackson harper in this in this superb performance uh and the audience relates to him every step of the way and uh, i think there, there were i i certainly had tears in my eyes uh at the end and i'm sure that much many of the other audience members did as well um uh the other uh, it's a very small cast, and there's a lot of doubling, which in some cases I thought was confusing. But uh, props to all of these other magnificent actors. Uh, J.O. Sanders plays um, uh, two of Kenneth's bosses, his boss at the uh, at the bookstore, uh, which then has, is forced to close. And then he plays um, th uh, this fellow who hires Kenneth to work at a bank. Uh, as a teller uh, for his next job. Um, and then April Mathis plays several roles, including um, a waitress at this bar where Kevin hangs out, this bar restaurant where he hangs out every night. And she eventually becomes a friend of his, a close friend of his. Um, but there were some other roles that she played, and one of the shifts uh, really confused me. Um, so it, it took me a while to... Uh, to figure that out, not because there was anything wrong with her portrayal. It's just that it seemed like um, it would have been nice to have maybe one more person in the cast. Um, the only negative of the, the entire production was, uh, and I guess it's written into the script was there was a um, occasional ringing of a bell sound, like the sort of the, the bell that you hear in a hotel when they ring it to, to summon the porter or the bellhop. Um and I think it was supposed to indicate passage of time sometimes and, and sometimes like just a reset of what was happening. But it seemed very inconsistent to me. And uh, because it was inconsistent, it also seemed a little unnecessary and pretentious. So I don't think the play needed that. I think it, I think it's all in the in the beautifully written script and these incredible performances. Um 
One final interesting note, I, I would describe this as a post-racial play uh, in the sense that um, Kenneth is is played by a, a black man and the character is supposed to be black, uh, but it doesn't, but that's not really that important to the story. It's almost a, just a taken for granted kind of a thing that that's just that he happens to be black. Uh, and he even says at one point that um, this suburb where he lives is mostly white people. <laughs> and then he says there are some black people. And then he mentions another ethnic group as well. But um, I, I think that that was wonderful. And I also love the fact that um, J.O. Sanders played two white characters who were not uh, the enemy of the black character. In fact, quite the opposite very, very much the opposite of his enemy. Uh, so that was one more reason why I, I, uh, why I really, really love this play. I urge you to get to see it, if at all possible. I, I had missed it initially, and then more than one person told me how much they loved it. So I was really glad that I scheduled it, because I would have hated, hated, hated to miss it. That's great. So Primary Trust is playing at Roundabout Theater's Laura Pell's uh, Theater. It's playing through July 2nd. And also, give you a heads up here, uh, Jan Simpson interviewed Ebony Booth, and it's coming up on this week's StageCraft podcast, which will be released on Patreon on Tuesday, June 13th, and available to the general public on Wednesday, June 14th. I will really look forward to hearing that. Maybe I can send you that a little bit early. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this week you saw the Shylock and the Shakespeareans at the New Ohio Theater uh, off-Broadway here in New York. So tell us about that. Well, the title is intriguing alone because you would assume that the if a play uh, that deals with the Merchant of Venice would be called Shylock and the Shakespeareans. No, not at all, um, because... The Shylock character here, who's interested in taking a pound of flesh from Antonio's breast, is named Jacob. The thing is, this play takes place after the events of The Merchant of Venice, and now Shylock is a term that's being used uh, for Jewish people. And indeed, you know, that would turn out to be true in uh, uh, much of the history of the, the Western world. So, uh, so here's Jacob, and uh, he gets into the same situation about lending Antonio money. But Times have really changed, and Lancelot Gabo, who's a, they're just for comic relief in the uh, original play, is not a comic character here at all. He is really leading a, a Ku Klux Klan type of uh, group of people who really want to eradicate the Jews. And um, they, they wear hoods. They wear hoods, and they, uh, on the hoods are printed that famous face of Shakespeare we see every time we see Shakespeare pictured. Um, and they uh, feel that Shakespeare has given them the right to, to get rid of the Jews, that um, indeed at the end of that play, Shylock must be a Christian. So, well, then that that's really what should happen. So it's a very strange way of saying that art is powerful and art affects people. Because when we say that, we usually mean that in a positive way, but here mm -hmm. it's affecting people in a negative way. So there are a lot of terrific questions that, um, that um, this play uh, brings up. And Edward Einhorn, who wrote it, also directed it. Um, one might um, question how he uh, handles Nerissa, which is um, Porsche's uh, 
um, servant. Uh, Stephanie Litchfield is is very broad in her interpretation, but but uh, to be fair, um, I think he was just using that as the comic relief in this show uh, because he doesn't have Lancelot Gobbo as comic relief here at all. Craig Anderson is wonderful as Gobbo, really menacing, menacing. You don't want to mess with this guy, I'll tell you. So, um, and uh, certainly Eric Olson uh, is is fine as Antonio, has a big surprise at the end where he doubles as another character. So uh, I won't say who that is, but um, but so many from the original player here, um, Bassanio's here, Lorenzo's here, uh, Portia would need a man. Excellent. Very elegant. Very elegant. And, um, and she, uh, is, is, uh, somebody who's really in power here more than she is in the original play. There's no, um, mistaken identity here at all. There's no, uh, cover up. Uh, she's, uh, she's a very powerful person in, in town. And, um, and Nina Mann really does a very nice job of showing that. So, a very worthwhile project. Not everything lands, of course, um, but far more often than not, far more often than not, tremendously intriguing and um, certainly well worth a visit to the new Ohio Theater, which um, in some ways may not be with us much longer. Uh, certainly the management that's been doing it for a long, long time has pulled out. And while the theater will still have seats and be there, we don't know if that'll continue to be the case. You just never know in a real estate market like New York what's going to happen to theaters. Uh, we've lost a lot of them over the years, and um, we may very well lose this one, too. But um, there's a very good way of saying goodbye, and that's by going to see the Shylock and the Shakespeareans. And the Shylock and the Shakespeareans is running through June 17th. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And... uh uh, I think that I saw an article or a post or something like that that they're trying to rent out the new Ohio theater and the rental rate for New York yeah. is very, very good. Oh, good. It's very inexpensive for New York is the caveat right. gotcha. there. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> uh, so I'm hoping I, – I think it was – I don't want to misquote here. I think it was along the lines of – just above a hundred thousand a year to uh -huh. rent it, uh -huh. which is very, very good for uh -huh. you know something like that. So hopefully somebody will step in and keep this a, uh, a space where off Broadway shows can be presented. And uh, I mean Edward Einhorn, he, he's just working all the time. He's just somebody who's very dedicated to the craft. So I'm really happy that we're able to see uh, his production here. Mm -hmm. All right, Michael, you had a uh, Broadway brunch, did you? Yes, I, I had actually a very young day last Sunday, June 4th, uh, because uh, first we did our podcast and then I went to um, this Broadway brunch. It was called at, at Vice Versa Restaurant, a wonderful restaurant in Hell's Kitchen, uh, and it was uh, put together by John Zendarsik, a friend of mine who teaches at both AMDA, the American Academy of Musical and Dramatic Art, and at Marymount. Um, and uh, it, he used this as a showcase for uh, his current and former students, several of his current and former students. And it was just fantastic. Um, they, they were all really exceptional as far as talent. Uh, 
the uh, 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 and there were um, people from uh, all over. I guess that, that that those schools draw uh, people from different parts of the world, not not just this country. Um, so there was a wonderful guy from Italy, and then um, there was this amazing guy from Croatia named Marko Dumancic who sang uh he sang one of josh groban's songs from natasha pierre and the great comet uh and did a beautiful job with that and then uh, he did she loves me uh so that was really great and uh then there was uh, um really one of the major highlights was this woman this young woman named laurel sharakan who sang my white knight from the music man and i could have danced all night from my fair lady both absolutely beautifully uh just glorious uh pinpoint soprano uh with very very gorgeous pure high notes and actually after uh i saw her on the way out and i said gee you know it was really nice to hear my white knight sung properly (laughs) um and she uh she smiled a little i mean she didn't neither one of us said anything negative against Sutton Foster, but we knew what I meant. Um, so I really, I'm, I, I, I was pleased to be there and, and see uh, so much talent for these, these really young people uh, who uh, deserve a showcase like that. Uh, but then later that day, um, I went to Staten Island to the Minty Awards, uh, which I mentioned before, uh, the, the, they are given for achievement in um, ca- Catholic high school theater <laughs> uh, wow. on Staten Island. Yeah. Um, and uh, they are run by uh, the fellow, this fellow named Mike Pinto, who uh, Peter saw as Nathan Detroit in the production of Guys and Dolls that I was in. Uh, and the Minties, like that production of Guys and Dolls, were held at the beautiful St. George Theater, so that was another plus. Um, and it was really, really um, terrific to see um, these. There are six Catholic high schools on Staten Island. Uh, some of them are co-ed, some of them are only boys some of them are only girls um and uh there's cross-pollination there well if that's the word um the what the the schools that are only boys uh use the girls from the girls schools and and vice versa and then sometimes they they draw uh students from other places as well um and since there were only six um schools and each of them does one musical a year uh so that means that <laughs> for example uh every show was nominated for best musical <laughs> all six of them and um and in each, each category uh it 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 usually worked out that one person from each show was nominated uh and so there was a lot of um spreading of the wealth in that way and i thought our, our listeners would be interested to know what the six shows were just to get an idea of what kind of what kind of shows are being done in high schools these days and they uh, i think it's a quite eclectic group the six shows were les miserables footloose the wizard of oz newsies into the woods and the adams family mm-hmm. so um there were uh, performances from each each of the shows they uh, what the minties uh does is kind of like what the jimmy awards does they do medleys um 
that give the uh, the students a, sh- a chance to uh, to sh- to show their talents. Uh, so there were m- like mini medleys from each of those shows, uh, uh, from each of those schools, and uh, then there was also an opening number that that was separate that was uh, put together separately. But um, it, it was it was really fun. I mean, there was a lot of uh, as you might imagine, there was a lot of screaming in the audience mm-hmm. <laughs> from friends, which got a little tiring. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, um, mm-hmm. young hormones. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we understand. And uh, and the talent on display was really really terrific. So I was. Uh, overjoyed to be at that and to have that happen on the same day as the, uh, the Broadway brunch. It, it, it really did my heart good. Um, what does the name come from? Oh, it's because it's, it's, it's a combination of Michael Pinto's first and last names. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm. All right. And, uh, also we wanted to talk about, uh, two things, one on the small screen, one on the large screen, uh, we had great performances, Broadway's Best, celebrating 50 years of Broadway's Best. Um, that's been airing on PBS mm. stations here in the U.S. So, Michael, tell us about this. Yeah, I had missed it uh, in, its, in its initial telecast. Um, I had heard from a few people that they really didn't like it, so I, I was trepidatious about watching it. But I thought, well, I have to. I can't miss this. Um, and I'm happy to say that while there were some questionable moments um, – there were also a lot of wonderful, wonderful numbers. Um, the show was directed and choreographed by Warren Carlyle with Patrick Vaccarello as the uh, musical director. And there was a full orchestra on stage on risers um, at the Coke Theater at Lincoln Center uh, and a very appreciative audience, as you might imagine. Um, so much content and wonderful talent to me. Uh, uh, well, oh, here's a neat thing. Um, I thought that they somebody had a great idea of a, a, a great um, framing device. The first number was Company from, well, the title song from Company, uh, performed um, with the original lyrics referring to a male Bobby, uh, including the name Robert, Robert, Bobby, Robert, darling. Uh, and then, uh, although they didn't actually have anyone singing Robert. Uh, they just had the chorus singing to him. And then someone came on representing Robert, but he didn't sing anything. But then the last number, uh, well, not the last number, um, towards the end, or maybe it was, yes, I'm sorry. The finale uh, was a Sondheim tribute, including uh, Sutton Foster singing Being Alive, because as we know, uh, the most recent Broadway production of Company had a a female Bobby. Uh, So I thought that was a nice, really nice framing device. And some of the other uh, highlights for me, again, I I can't mention everyone because it was there was so much that was great. Uh, But Cheetah Rivera at 90 doing all that jazz. Uh, Shoshana Bean knocking I Dreamed a Dream out of the park. Uh, Norm Lewis singing Music of the Night from Phantom, because uh, he, he had a, a, a stint in that show, um, and he sounded beautiful to me. Um, Raul Esparza doing an uh, interesting choice. There was a sucker born every minute from Barnum. Uh, I don't think he has any association with that show, so I wonder if that's just a, a dream role of his, or if he just likes the song. Um uh, our friend Stokes uh, singing Make Them Hear You. 
um, Rob McClure was the star of a uh, a medley of song of songs from shows uh, that have been produced in since the year two thousand, uh, and that was really really great. And he was the perfect person for that. Um, and then uh, two more: Jessica Vosk uh, singing "Divine Gravity." Uh, her her voice really is a phenomenon if you if you're not familiar with her catch up with jessica vosk and um finally sarah Borellis and jesse mueller uh singing from waitress so i um i was more than happy with um the highlights of this show and it certainly made me forgive the few moments that maybe didn't quite make it and also you caught up with the newest um Release from Disney of The Little Mermaid. This one's a live action. So tell us what you thought. Oh, yeah. I was very, very pleased with that because I um, did not like the live action remake of Aladdin. I just thought it was too relentless and frenetic and and kind of sledgehammery um, and very lacking in charm. And as for the live action remake of Beauty and the Beast... I've started to watch it a few times, and I I couldn't not get past uh, the opening number uh, because I disliked it so much. Uh, partly because the leading lady in that movie, unfortunately, cannot sing at all, in my opinion. Um, and who wants that? Uh, so I was not expecting much, but I I really really enjoyed the Little Mermaid overall. Uh, a couple of decisions in the rewrites of the of the uh the text and the score that i didn't like but on the other hand um there are uh three new songs uh with music by alan menken and lyrics by lin-manuel miranda and i like two of them uh, a lot so i don't think that's a bad uh a bad batting average um uh and uh um what else did I want to say? Uh, the uh, I really enjoyed the cast, and uh, visually, it's it's quite stunning, as you might imagine. I, I saw the movie in three D, which I would urge you to do. Um, oh, I, I was a little disappointed that none of the new songs that were written for the stage adaptation of Little Mermaid were included, uh, with lyrics by Glenn Slater. Um, because I, I really like several of those songs. Um, uh, but I understand why uh, they decided not to include any of them because they wanted to have new songs and they wanted them to be ha- uh, with lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it is nice um, to have, uh, I think it's kind of wonderful that Lin-Manuel is teaming with people like Alan Menken and John Kander. Uh, you know, I, I love that sort of old guard, new guard thing that happens uh, there. Um, so, uh, so I'm very happy with that. And I, uh, I'm hearing all different things as to how well 
uh, this movie is doing at the box office. People have all different interpretations as to how much it has to make in its first weekend, and you know how how you compare that to uh, what how much it costs when you add marketing and all that, and and how how it's going to do on on successive weekends and, and as as the as the box office uh keeps going is it going to drop or is it uh, greatly or is it going to sustain so i don't know what to tell you on that i can only tell you that i really enjoyed it and i would urge you to see it all right great so that wraps it up for this morning before we get on to our trivia and our musical moment i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be downloaded to apple Podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us in apple Podcasts. there's many ways to get us you can go to patreon patreon.com slash broadway radio and um and uh, support Broadway Radio by subscribing there, and all your support for the various different shows on Broadway Radio would be covered in Patreon, as well as uh, getting our podcast a little bit earlier. As I mentioned, Jan Simpson's Stagecraft, Stagecraft podcast is going to be coming out a little bit earlier. So... Uh, you can support us there. You can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Cont- contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? In the closing section of one of Stephen Sondheim's opening numbers, you'll hear a plural noun that, if you turned it into a singular noun, would sound the same as the last name of a person with whom Sondheim would eventually work for the bulk of his career. It isn't spelled the same, but it sounds the same. Well, in comedy tonight from A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Sondheim had a line about pantaloons and tunics. Well, that last word is very close to tunic, the orchestrator who did most of Sondheim's musicals from company on. Steve Bell got his seconds after I asked the question. Seconds! Followed by Tony Janicki, Paul Witte, Juliette Green, Josh Israel, Christine Chen, Arthur Robinson, Brigadude, Sean Logan, Dan Rubens, Danny and Sandy Campbell, Hal Morgan, Deb Popple, Jack Leshner, Stu Goldstone, Isaac Blevins, and Mike Meany. Now, some of those names uh, are names I've never said before, and I imagine this has to do with Kathy Jones' wonderful suggestion that we put this uh, question in the show notes. So uh, if you're listening and uh, you can't get it down right uh, right away, by all means, uh, take a look at the show notes. The new question will be there. And speaking of that new question, he wrote a famous theme for one of television's longest-running shows, as well as a signature song for one of the nation's most famous singers. He also recorded three songs that reached number one on the charts. So what does this have to do with Broadway, you're asking? Mm-hmm. Well, he did fill in for one week, and one week only, in a Broadway musical that was on its way to a more than 500 performance run. Who is he? What's the musical? If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, we have two selections from the new live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. The opener is Under the Sea, uh, as performed by David Diggs uh, as the voice of Sebastian. And if anyone knows 
David Diggs's work, uh, you can only imagine how great he is as Sebastian. <laughs> um, so that was one of the highlights of the film for me. Um, and then the, our closer is one of the new songs that I really, really like. Uh, it's called Wild Uncharted Waters, uh, music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and uh, sung by Jonah Howard King in the role of Prince Eric. Um, what's interesting there is that the original uh, animated film of The Little Mermaid uh, had the prince singing not a single note. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, there were some wonderful songs written for the stage adaptation, uh, including one that I do miss uh, called uh, Her Voice. But this wild Uncharted Waters, I think, is is thought of as a replacement for that song and it comes in roughly the same place and it is very very lovely um so i think you will enjoy it and i do urge everyone to see uh little mermaid if you can't get to see it in theater uh try to catch up with it on video at some point all right so on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway bye-bye bye bye all I ever wanted was the open sea and sky Freedom from the life I always knew Now all I am is haunted as days and hours roll by All I ever think about is you There you are Found. I had almost drowned Till you came around And you found me Now I am on the shoreline But I'm still lost at sea In these wild uncharted waters Come find me wonder who you are and where you'll be In my mind your melody goes on Stronger than the undertow The night you rescued me Silhouetted by the rising dawn Oh,